The Protestant Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement. Rather than the traditions of men reigning, people now wanted to understand what Scripture said, what God has spoken. And in doing so, we come to understand the truth. Thy word is truth, Jesus said. John chapter 17, verse 17. The entrance of his word brings light, the book of Psalms says. And where there was darkness, light has appeared, not only in the coming of the Lord Jesus, the word made flesh, but through the light of Scripture itself, to understand who God is according to how he has revealed himself, both in nature and in Scripture. Nature is general revelation. Scripture is special revelation. And because of that, we know who God is because God has revealed himself. We all have our opinions. We all think our opinions are great until we have the more sure word, the word of God himself that tells it like it really is. And if we are humble and submissive to the word of God, we'll come under it and say, I abandoned my former thinking. I now want to believe the truth. And the truth is what God has revealed, revealed in Scripture. Who God is, what his plan is, where we are at in this world, where we've come from. The Bible answers these questions with ultimate authority. Who am I? Where do I, where did I come from? Where did we come from? What is my purpose here and where am I going? This the Bible states in very, very clear terms. When we come to understand the doctrines of the Bible, we come to understand the message of grace. The Bible is not a moral program to help us get to God. It's not that. It's a rescue plan. It's God's revelation of how he's come into this world to rescue us by what he does and by what he does alone. We are not self-improvement people whereby we think, well, it's kind of half time in the game of eternity and life and all of that. And if we can just tweak a few things, we can get there. No, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We have grieved God, we have violated all that is holy with our lifestyle, the way we've thought, our tongues, our actions, uh, thought, word, and deed. We are sinners. And when we emphasize that, and it's right to do so because the Bible does emphasize that, we have a tendency then to simply stay there. And there's a lot of good reason to stay there, to recognize God's grace in saving us. In fact, we don't understand the beauty and the brilliance and the dazzling display of glory in the gospel until we realize how black our situation was, how deep we were in the weeds, how we were sinners with no hope, none at all, apart from God. We are desperate in our condition. We refer to it as total depravity. Not that we are utterly depraved as mankind, but every component part of man has been affected by the fall. We don't think clearly. We don't think right thoughts about God. Our, our minds have been corrupted. Darkened is the biblical expression. 
Our our bodies are now subject to sickness and even death. Spiritually, we're dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. That was our condition. But in saying all that, and all of that is true, and all of that needs to be emphasized, rightly so, now that Christians are Christians, we are in a completely different standing before God than we were. And God, through the Lord Jesus Christ and our standing in Him, we have amazing privileges. And that is something that tends not to be emphasized in our circles. Oh yeah, we we talk about justification by faith alone and right there is the heart of the gospel. Luther was right. The, The fact is this doctrine of justification is the doctrine of the standing or the falling church, to use his words. A church that does not stand on the truth of justification by faith alone is a a false church and no longer stands. That is altogether true. But when you and I think about our relationship with God, we need to hear the message of our depravity to understand grace. You don't get grace until you realize it was not my decision that got me in. That one thing I did, no, even our faith The desire for Christ, the desire to even trust in Christ is the gift of God. It's been given you to believe, Philippians 1.29 says. Those who have received like precious faith, 2 Peter 1 declares. We've received this. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And books don't get written by themselves. I'm an author. It didn't get written by itself. The first book I wrote, the second book I wrote, if I'm in a writing project, I'm writing the book. And yet, that's how the Bible describes our faith. Jesus authored it. And so we don't even take credit for the faith we have that is faith in Him that saves. And we're justified by faith alone. So I want to talk about what we tend not to emphasize, but which is also the other side of the coin. For legal tender as a coin, perhaps you've got a 10 cent piece or a quarter, you need both sides of the coin to be intact for it to be a legal tender designation that can be used in a store or anywhere else. And this truth of justification by faith alone is so, so key. But also there's a co-doctrine, a doctrine linked to it and yet distinct from it that we tend not to emphasize. But I want to address that because God doesn't have to deal with you because you've got faith in Christ and you happen to respond and you've got this now certificate on your wall in the spiritual realm that says, I'm justified. And God says, yeah, I'd love to throw you out. Love to throw you out of my heaven, but you've got this document. Can't do anything about it now. That's not God's view of you. Do you know He loves you? How often have you heard that? He loves you. He loved you and He sent His Son into the world to save you. If you're Christ, God has never started loving you. He always has. He set His love on a people in eternity past. He gave grace to us. In eternity past. It's, it's 
seen in time, but in eternity past, God decided to set his love on a people, his own people. So I want to talk about adoption. I've talked about this, but it needs to be emphasized. It's so important. Go in your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. And we read familiar words in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, just the right time, God's time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amazing words. Romans 8 says that we are heirs with God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Joint heirs. You ever thought about that? We get the standing with God that Jesus has with his Father. Now, we're not talking about being deity. We're not talking about that. We're talking about we're in a very privileged position to now sit with Christ in heavenly places. And where is Jesus seated? He's seated on the throne. We're seated alongside him. Not that we are demigods. demigods. We, we, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the way the Father sees us. He sees us, and here's the most frequent phrase we find in the New Testament regarding this. He sees us in Christ Jesus. It's a phrase used more than a hundred times. Someone counted them up. I think there's over 130 of these. In him or in Christ Jesus. That's your position in Christ. But God has given us more than simply a position in Christ where we have his, that's Christ's own righteousness as a gift. We didn't have any of our own. Think about it. We'd committed no righteousness. That's hard for the religious mind to grasp. But Isaiah points that out very clearly. Isaiah 64 verse 6. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. The original wording there describes uh, something that's hard to even put on paper. It's, 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 It's terrible. And that's our righteousness. Now, the religious mind could understand that if God had said all our unrighteousness is filthy before God. That's not what he is talking about. He's saying all our righteousness, that's the best we can do, is filthy in the eyes of God. Because we have a sin nature and we have never done anything perfectly with perfect, perfect love for God. And God's standard is perfection. And God has never reduced his standard just because people come short of that standard. We don't use that phrase back in England, but here we use the phrase grading on a curve. Well, because certain people, are, most of the people are not 
getting to the 100%, we're going to grade on a curve here, and anyone who gets over 70, they, they qualify for something. That's not how things work. God's standard is perfection. And that's where the gospel comes in. God requires absolute perfection. Jesus, not someone else, Jesus said, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. And we think, oh, how wonderful that is. No, it's, it's terribly bad news because none of us are perfect. And we say, yeah, Pastor, none of us are perfect. Yeah, and that's the problem. None of us have lived a holy life for even one hour of our lives. Well, we've been sleeping for some of it. Yeah, but what were you dreaming about? <laughs> none of us have lived perfectly. No, not one. There are none that do good. No, not one. You read Romans 3. It's quoting Old Testament verses. This was not a new doctrine in Romans 3. That's Paul's point in Romans 3. He's quoting Old Testament verses left and right to show that his doctrine of our depravity is something that's spelled out right through the Bible. But that's not where Romans 3 ends. It talks about, in Romans 3, he is the righteousness of those who believe. Righteousness. Righteousness. He, Christ, is our standing before the Father. His righteousness is ours. How did that happen? Well, it is related to another doctrine called imputation. And on the cross, our sins were laid on him. That's what Isaiah 53 says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way and the Lord has laid on him. That's imputation. Laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the cross, the sins of all God's elect people were laid on Christ and he bore the punishment for those sins. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins. Where? In the garden? No in his body on the tree. At the cross, God laid on Christ our sins and he was punished in our place. He was the sin bearer. And those who trust in the Lord Jesus, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It says, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, to become that sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Philippians 3, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ. So because of imputation, we have the doctrine of justification and a related theme is the doctrine of adoption. I want to give you a, a couple of quotes and a couple of thoughts before we begin on that. A word about quotes. I, I, I don't want to always uh, quote folk I, I disagree with, but I'm never going to find someone with whom I agree 100% of the time unless I'm quoting Jesus. <laughs> but I, I seek not to quote known heretics. But when someone's quoted, please don't perceive this as an endorsement of everything they say elsewhere. It's merely an acknowledgement, acknowledgement that what I'm quoting is either helpful or insightful. 
And um, when we talk about uh, human analogies, they can be useful, uh, sometimes very, extremely useful, but then they usually have their limitations. And that's the case when I tell you of a story I once heard. Two little girls, uh, one was born into the family, the other was adopted. And in a fight between the two girls, one little girl said to the other, I'm mommy and daddy's real daughter, huh? What a horrible thing to say, but that's what was said. The other little girl looked a little downcast for a moment, and then she said, well, mommy and daddy had to have you, but they chose me. I like that. I like that. Now, I'm going to quote um, from... Uh, something from Russell Moore. I don't always agree with uh, what he would say, but this is a, a helpful thing he, he wrote in uh, a book, Adopted for Life, The Priority of Adoption for Christian Families and Churches. Let me quote, When Maria and I first walked into the orphanage where we were led to the boys the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, we almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs in the dark, lying in their own waste. Leaving them at the end of each day was painful, but leaving them the final day before going home to wait for the paperwork to go through was the hardest thing either of us had ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxim calling out for us and falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears of her own. I turned around to walk back into their room just for a minute. I placed my hand on both of their heads and said, knowing they couldn't understand a word of English, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14 verse 18. It just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. Later on in his book, he he writes this. When my wife Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They'd never seen the sun and they'd never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried along at a hundred miles an hour down a road. I noticed they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's happy meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid. They had no other reference point. It was home. We knew the boys had acclimatized themselves to our home, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. We knew there would be, excuse me, they knew 
there would be another meal coming and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. This was the new normal. They're now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. I still remember, though, those little hands reaching for the orphanage, and I see myself there. End of quote. That's a deeply moving story, and yet it pictures something even greater. In fact, far greater divine adoption. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Adoption as sons. Romans chapter 8. I'd like us to go there. I'd like to see this uh, slavery and adoption contrasted. We've seen it already in uh, Galatians. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also may be glorified with him. Here the scripture speaks of the inward cry of the believer, the cry of Abba Father. It's a word that means dear father, a phrase that means dear father. Both toddlers, young children, and grown adults use the phrase in reference to their father. Both would say Abba. It speaks of deep personal affection and intimacy as, as well as respect. Now, God will complete this adoption that we enjoy now when he renews our bodies at Christ's return. Verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So we are adopted. We're not waiting for our adoption, yet we're waiting eagerly for a manifestation of our adoption, which is the redemption of our body. God's plan for the physical body is very different from other religions that have no place for the body. Freedom is to be free of the body, not, not so in the Christian faith. Now, let's talk about justification and adoption. Justification 
That's God's legal declaration. It's the courtroom scenario where God pronounces the sinner as just. I declare you just in my sight, righteous. I pronounce you righteous. This is more than simply someone being forgiven, as wonderful as that is. Imagine we owe a a debt, let's put it in financial terms. Let's say we owe billions to God, a debt we cannot pay, and God cancels that debt. But that just brings us to zero. We owe nothing. We are forgiven the debt. That would be wonderful, but it's not enough to enter into heaven. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of God. No, we need positive righteousness. Getting rid of sin is wonderful in the act of God's forgiveness, but we need righteousness. And that's where the gospel comes in of Jesus living for us as well as dying for us. In his death, he counseled out our sin. In his life, he lived the life of obedience to the law that we should have lived. And that righteous life of credit, of righteousness, is transferred to the account of everyone who believes. (laughs) It's amazing. And so many don't grasp this, but this is center in the gospel. Justification, then, by faith alone, gives the child of God a sure an impenetrable legal standing and status before God. God declares all who put their faith in Christ righteous in his sight. Romans 5.1, what does that say? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian can look back at their justification. Once they put their faith in Christ, God says, I declare you right with me. And it's a standing with God that is forever. When it's true, genuine faith, you get justification and you don't lose that. Hallelujah. Ever. God declares all who put their faith in Christ righteous in his sight. This stands at the very heart of the biblical gospel. I've already quoted it, Martin Luther. Justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And that's true for the professing church, whatever the name is on the side of the church building. It's true of the individual. We stand or fall based on the article of justification by faith alone. Yet even with this sure and certain knowledge, the Christian can often feel distance from his God. That God kind of just tolerates them, merely tolerates them because they happen to have the right paperwork. All right, show us your papers. Oh, you've got justification? All right, I'll leave you alone. If that in any way describes your relationship with God, the great news is this. Are you ready? Take a breath. God adopted you. That might not mean too much to you just now, but when you see the full ramifications of your adoption in Christ, I I believe your, your heart will burst with joy. The Apostle John wrote this. See 
how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. And such we are. 1 John 3 verse 1. He understood what you and I need to understand. God got all the paperwork in place at great cost to himself so that he could unveil and display his love for you now and for all eternity. Hey, pull up a chair. Feel free to kick your shoes off. Here it is. You have all the privileges of sonship in his family. You're welcome. Hallelujah. You're welcome in his house forever. Right there. Let's emphasize justification. Justification, the article upon which the church stands or falls. Yes, amen, Luther, you, you got that right. John Calvin wrote this, justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. Yeah, I agree. Luther again, to quote him, this is the chief article from which all other, other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, the judge over all kinds of doctrines. He later said this, When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen, therefore it is necessary, necessary constantly to inculcate and impress it in other words, talk about it all the time, as Moses says of his law, Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, for it cannot be inculcated and urged enough or too much. In other words, you can't talk about this too much. Indeed, even though we learn it well and hold to it, yet there is no one who apprehends it perfectly or believes it with a full affection and heart. So very trickish is our flesh fighting as it does against the obedience of the Spirit. That's great insight. We've got to continually hear this because we, we don't grasp it inherently. We have to have special revelation because we tend by default to go to a works-based relationship with God. It's based on what I do. God likes me or doesn't like me based on my performance. No, he, he, he has set his love for you and in his eternal plan, he made sure your relationship with God will be based on Christ's performance for you in your place, in his life and in his death, plus nothing. Do you need to hear that again? God's view of you is based on the performance of Jesus Christ in your place, in his life and in his death. And this raised up Savior has raised you up with him to sit with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Thomas Cranmer, let me quote him, justification is the strong rock and foundation of Christian religion. Whoever denies this doctrine is not to be counted for a true Christian man, but an adversary of Christ. Here's a quote more up-to-date, John Stott. He has uh, since gone to be with the Lord in 
uh, some time ago now, but um, certainly in, within the last century, he wrote this. Justification, uh, uh, you need to sit down for this. <laughs> Justification is not a synonym for amnesty, which is pardon without principle, a forgiveness which overlooks, even forgets, wrongdoing and declines to bring it to justice. No. Justification is an act of justice. When God justifies sinners, he's not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they're not sinners after all. He's pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law because he himself, in his son, has borne the penalty of their law-breaking. We are justified by his blood. The moment we believe in Christ, we're united to him and immediately are endowed with all that he has secured for us. And we're immediately justified before we've done a single good deed because we are His and He is God's. Think about a very, very poor woman being a very poor woman until the very moment she marries a wealthy man. <laughs> At that moment, the moment she becomes his wife, she becomes a wealthy woman. At that moment. It's by means of her acceptance that she becomes a wealthy woman. But her acceptance does not make her a wealthy woman. It's her husband's wealth that makes her a wealthy woman. So, faith doesn't justify, in the sense I'm using that phrase, faith doesn't justify, Christ justifies and he justifies through the mechanism of faith. It's the instrument by which we're justified. But it's Christ who justifies us. It's God who justifies us. Faith is the act of union with Christ. I, I brought this out before, but it bears repeating. I don't think you'll be sad if I bring it out again. It's found on page 60, uh, excuse me, page 16 of. My, my book on the five solas. And I'm quoting Dr. Michael Reeves from his book, Why the Reformation Still Matters. And he refers to this as Luther's favorite way of explaining the gospel. Let me quote Dr. Reeves. When Luther first sought, sought to explain his Reformation discovery to the world, it was the story of a wedding that framed what he said. Drawing on the romance of the lover and his beloved in Song of Solomon, especially chapter 2, verse 16, my beloved is mine and I'm his. He told the story as the story of a rich and divine bridegroom, Christ, who marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her, the harlot, from all her evil and adorns her with all his goodness. At the wedding, a wonderful exchange takes place whereby the king takes all the shame and debt of his bride and the harlot receives all the wealth and royal status of a bridegroom. For Jesus and the soul that is united to him by faith, it works like this. Now quoting Luther. Christ 
is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now, let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's, and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? End of quote. Now quoting Dr. Reeves. In the story, the prostitute finds that she's been made a queen. That does not mean she always behaves as befits royalty, but however, however she behaves, her status is royal. She is now the queen. So it is with the believer. She remains a sinner and continues to stumble and wander, but she has the righteous status of her perfect and royal bridegroom. She is, and until death will remain, at the same time both utterly righteous in her status before God and sinner in her behavior. That means that it's simply wrong-headed for the believer to look to her behavior as an accurate yardstick of her righteousness before God. Her behavior and her status are distinct. Let me say that sentence again. Her behavior and her status are distinct. He goes on. The prostitute will grow more queenly as she lives with the king and feels the security of his love, but she will never become more the queen. Just so. The believer will grow more Christ-like over time, but never more righteous Thus, because of Christ and not because of her performance, the sinner can know a despair-crushing confidence. Oh, I'm praying you enjoy this despair-crushing confidence also. To quote Luther again, her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ her husband, of which she may boast as of her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell, and say, if I've sinned, yet my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine is his. <laughs> End of quote. What an insight. Justification by faith alone is therefore just really theological shorthand for justification by Christ alone. We are saved by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Faith is therefore not some meritorious act that we perform that gains God's favor. Christ has gained favor for sinners in his life, his death, his burial and resurrection. And salvation is God's work from start to finish. Faith is merely the instrument that
that unites sinners to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As B.B. Warfield said so well, it is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. (laughs) Oh, what a happy, happy understanding we get. Justification is not probation. You're out of prison now, but I'm watching you. One more slip up and you're back behind bars. No, that's not justification. That's probation. Neither is God's courtroom decision up for renegotiation. Justification is eternal and irrevocable. God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? That's justification. Yet, adoption is related. Chapter 12 of our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, on adoption. Chapter 12. I'll read it. God has granted that all those who are justified... You see... You can't really talk about adoption without also talking about justification. They are very much related doctrines. God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of His only Son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit His name, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him as a Father. Yet they are never cast off, but are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Scriptures are quoted. Let me just briefly run through them so you have them. Ephesians 1, 5, Galatians 4, 4 and 5, John 1, verse 12, Romans 8, 17, 2 Corinthians 6, 18, Revelation 3, 12, Romans 8, 15, Galatians 4, 6, Ephesians 2, 18, Psalm 103, verse 13, Proverbs 14, 26, 1 Peter 5, verse 7, Hebrews 12, 6, Isaiah 54, 8 and 9, Lamentations 3, verse 31, Ephesians 4, 30, Hebrews 1, 14 and 6, 12. I mentioned that because these are the scriptures that would be referred to when saying what is said in the chapter of the Confession on Adoption. It's not just brought out of thin air. There are scripture verses that would highlight and reinforce and be the foundation for the statements that are made. Let me quote J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, page 206. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt 
gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins, an assurance of a restored relationship with God, more than we need anything else in the world. Do you hear that? We need the forgiveness of our sins, an assurance of a restored relationship with God, more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. And again, you ready for this? I hope you're sitting down. This is, this is strong stuff, powerful stuff. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Oh, <laughs> hallelujah. Sonship, it's not our natural condition before God. Our sonship is adopted sonship. We'll stop there and I'm sure resume it at another time. But I hope your heart is thrilled as I am to know of justification and adoption and recognize all that God has done for us and is doing for us that you have, so to speak, the smile of God upon you. He doesn't just tolerate you because you happen to have a certificate. Hold the paperwork up, he'll, he'll move on, he won't throw you out. No, you've got the paperwork because he loves you and sent Christ for you who lived, died, and rose again from the dead. Because of repentance and faith, those two dual actions of man are the gift of God. God grants repentance as well as he grants faith. Take a sad relief. You're his because he wanted you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this study. We pray that you'll write this on our hearts. If we have to hear it 85 times before we get it, Lord, whatever we have to do, write this truth, the truth of your word in our hearts. We're loved by God. That's the mystery of all mysteries. Why? why? Why me? Why would he love me? And the biblical answer is there was no reason found in us. It was just his sovereign choice. Lord, we give you praise. We give you glory. We're a thankful people, justified and adopted, adopted now and forever. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.